So, the scripture tells us that with many other exhortations, John proclaimed the good news to the people. Um, I'm not sure that's how I would characterize it if I'd been there. When Dr. Powers was up here saying that with kindness, God calls us to repentance, that, that ain't quite how John did it. Um, if you were going to look at a book that says how to um, lose friends and alienate people, you might say, and for a great example, we've got this guy over here. Um, he wants to call folks to a particular response, and, you know, calling them a brood of vipers seems to be a good in. This doesn't seem to be the way that um, we think about doing these things. So it's very interesting when we were talking about the fruits of the Spirit this, this year in the semester, um, I was thinking about the word fruit, and this word and phrase kept coming up to me, and it must have been from a liturgy we used in the Episcopalian church where I grew up, but I just kept hearing this phrase, you know, produce fruits in keeping with repentance. Produce fruits in keeping with repentance, an older translation. And I just kept thinking, what, a, what an interesting phrase. Um, because we produce fruits, and they have a particular characteristic. And so I decided to go back and look for this phrase, and I found it here in the Gospel of Luke. It's also in the Gospel of Matthew, also chapter 3. And interestingly enough, an extremely similar phrase is in Acts 26, which we also had a reading from. And so I just wanted to spend a few minutes walking through these verses. As we consider this year um, the life of discipleship and the ways that many things have followed in with that, sacrifice, community, um, and the fruits of the Spirit. And it's been delightful to walk through the fruits of the Spirit. Um, it's a really, by our ears, it's sort of this gentle list. Um, you know, they seem to be very quiet, almost passive until you understand them properly, but they don't seem to be very confrontational on their, on their surface. And so to then read about what it means to bear fruit and to come back to these scriptures is really interesting. Um, that's a great thing about reading the whole scripture, isn't it? You don't have to live just within one passage or another, but this whole of this writing, this whole of this gift speaks to us, and we move amongst it. We read how things are connected to one another, and we live those connections. And so what we've got here is um, the beginning of the book of Luke. We've had the genealogy. We've been set up on who John is by his relationship um, to the family of Jesus. And so he goes out into the wilderness to preach a baptism of repentance. And the way the structure of the text is set up sets John squarely in this set of the Old Testament prophets, this idea of the Word of God. Um, verse 3, um, no, verse 2, the Word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, reminding us of the stuff in Luke 1, reminding us of God's presence even before he's born. Um, came to him in the wilderness, and he goes around proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then we're tied back to Isaiah 40, um, the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. And so we, we hear this thing that sets up the narrative of Luke-Acts, but also takes us deeply back to some of these strong Old Testament prophets. And he's going to preach um, a baptism and uh, I believe in Matthew it says forgiveness of sins. Here it says baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. And so he is calling to these folks who've come to him. And in the book of Matthew it says that he's speaking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're named. Luke says that John's just saying to the crowds, these folks who have come to join him. So he is addressing 
them, y'all, us, right? Not just a subset that it's easy to pick on. We're all there together. And he says to the crowds who have come to him to do this spiritual uh, ceremony and ritual and liturgy that's really precious. And he doesn't say, great, I'm so excited you're all here. God's going to do good work in us today. He looks at them and says, y'all are just a mess of writhing snakes. Like, not just snakes, you're like the vipers. You know, vipers are, they're aggressive, they're predators, they're dangerous, they're sneaky. He says, y'all are a brood of vipers. He talks about the crowds being this sense of um, a, a, a family, the offspring nesting in, like in a little hole or under a rock with a family. This is the identity he gives these folks who are coming to receive this baptism. And then he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath that's to come? And you think about snakes, you know, they're kind of hunkering down in their hole. And then if something is coming, a danger, they all take off. So John's saying, look, y'all have been hunkered down together in your characteristics and identity of being poisonous, devious, dangerous predators. And all of a sudden, you're sensing this danger, and now, now you want to run off to safety. And he says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And he says, and don't even start with me. Don't even start with me about, well, I'm a child of Abraham, so, you know, I'm, don't. He says, uh-uh, I don't want to hear it. It's, it's, it's not what you think it is. Fruit, children of Abraham, like, hand me a stone. We'll raise them up. Do you want a baker's dozen? Do you want a whole truckload full? This is not a problem. God does not need y'all and like he can raise up as many children of Abraham as he wants. Um, and he says, y'all, you need to be aware. Um, the axe is lying at the foot of the tree, at the root of the tree. And I remember, um, I was thinking about this, this sense of urgency. And I remember I had a, um, a, a boss one time who, we had a coworker who was really struggling and did not seem to want to get with these exhortations. And he said, um, I've written this dismissal letter, and it's sort of in my drafts folder, and I really hope I don't have to use it. Like, I would, I, we're encouraging, we're exhorting, we're saying here are these performance goals, but, you know, this letter's here. Like, th there's a sense that things will not go on the way they are forever. Um, and so John is approaching these folks um, with a very strong message. Um, you know, in our time, you might say that he was being divisive or um, not positive, or you win more flies with honey than with vinegar. And yet with honey, like, I remember reading this passage earlier in my life and thinking about John and thinking, well, maybe he was just a big grump, you know, like he's out there, he's eating locusts, maybe he's hangry, you know, the honey's sticking to his teeth, he's wearing the burlap, it's chafing. Maybe if he just settled down a little, he would be less unpleasant. Um, but then I get on to Acts 26, and here is this person who's in some ways quite different from John. You've got Paul, who is a Roman to the Romans, who's the exemplary Jewish citizen, who has done all these things. His pedigree is outstanding in a different way than John's pedigree is special. And he stands up in what's sort of the biggest speech at the end of Acts, when he's sort of giving his apologetic to Agrippa, and he says, you know, when I received the heavenly vision, I did not disobey. I went into these lands... Um, calling on folks to repent and do deeds worthy of repentance, 
reflective of repentance. So it's not just that someone is angry and wants to make other folks uncomfortable and discomfited, but there's something about this sense of fruits of repentance that is a sort of the beginning and the end of the Luke-Acts narrative. And it's peppered all the way through. The sense of fruit is really prevalent in Luke-Acts when you think about what happens when things need to be fruitful and they're not fruitful. Um, it's a sense of not works righteousness, but it's a sense of an outward manifestation of what has changed inside you. It's the sense of the inevitable, not just blossoming, but fruiting of the nature of who you are. Um, there are those pear trees that are out there, really popular Bradford pears. They flower beautifully. They have nice foliage, but they don't fruit. And so, you know, the blossoms are nice, they're pretty, but they don't produce the fruit. And so, the fact that both John and Paul, and then throughout the scriptures, Jesus says, you know, fruits worthy of repentance, fruits that are consistent with repentance. I went through all these commentators. I meant to jot them all down because they're all so great. But this idea of fruits that bear witness, fruits that, that are so consistent with what you're saying, that what you're saying cannot be argued. Um, standing against hypocrisy, standing against empty actions. Um, and this is what John is commending to the people in extraordinarily strong terms. Um, and he's sort of threatening in a way. He's like, look, the ax is here. It's there. Do you see it? Like, the time is now. John's exhortations are harsh, they are urgent, and they are concrete. And so you kind of wonder what folks are going to do. Um, and this is where the Luke passage expands a bit from where Matthew does, and it's really, it's really interesting. So instead of the folks saying, I'm terrified, I'm leaving, this guy scares me, instead of falling into a fatalism and saying, well, obviously nothing can be done, I'm just a worm, I'm a, brood of, I'm a viper and a brood, um, instead of falling into defensiveness or saying, well, if you're going to be that judgy, I don't care what you have to say. Um, the folks do something that is a response that's a stream, a stream, a thread throughout Luke-Acts, and they say, what then should we do? That's really interesting. I mean, these folks who have been <laughs> slapped in the face verbally say, well, then what should we do? And in reply, John says to them something that's kind of it's kind of boring. Well, if you have two coats, share with someone who doesn't have a coat. And if you have food, share with those who don't. Okay. <laughs> like, really? You know, that's, that's what you've got for us after this big lead-up. Um, and then he gives specific instructions to two different sets of people. There's this word even. He says, even the tax collectors come up. And that's this idea that it's like as this, you know, traitorous sort of outside suspect group of folks, they come up and they say, what should we do? And he says, okay, y'all, stop extorting people. Stop robbing. If you're supposed to take, you know, $50, take $50. Don't take 70 to pad your pockets. And then the soldiers come up, another suspect group of outsiders um, who wield a lot of power. They are not considered to be fully in the family in the same way. And they say, and we... What should we do? And John responds to them, and he says, don't take money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Don't uh, blackmail, don't lie, and be satisfied with your wages. So these instructions seem a bit um, 
they seem a bit mundane. Like, really, you had this, you had this situation, you had this opportunity, and this is what you give us. But just because something is mundane or possibly simple in appearance does not mean it's easy. Um, you know, just the basic commandments to share of our coats and our food, um, that action lies wrapped up in a whole host of things, how we view one another culturally, as family, theologically, will God provide. Um, and then, you know, telling tax collectors and soldiers to be content with their wages and not to take advantage of their situations and their, and their power, you know, that's really complicated. Like, so the tax collector goes home and he says, okay, I know we've been bringing home an extra thousand dollars a month for all the niceties, but that's going to stop now. I'm just going to live on our salary. That's going to be problematic, possibly, in his family. You know, then at the next tech collector's meeting, here's the one guy saying, I don't think we should rob anymore. I don't think we should rip people off. How's that going to go over? It upsets the status quo. Now other folks may feel convicted. They may feel guilty. They may think he's better than us. You know, these seemingly simple things um, can be part of the cost of discipleship. And in their simplicity, John shows us that this idea of fruits worthy of repentance is extremely serious, but it comes down into the day-to-day mundane details of our lives. They may be mundane, but they're not unimportant. They reveal so much of how we see ourselves. They, were, they, they reveal how people see us in our community. You know, what would it mean if the tax collector stopped ripping people off? They might be perceived differently. Like, we don't know the waves that are going to emerge from these small acts of change, from these small, new fruits of repentance. Um, And so, as they hear these things, the people are filled with expectation. That's an exciting word. You know, you would think they would be filled with despair, with um, anger, with defensiveness, um, maybe with pride if they were already doing okay, if they were one of the ones in the crowd that were doing well. But they were filled with a sense of expectation. Um, and they question in their hearts about John, is he the Messiah? That's interesting about the passages between Luke and, and Matthew. Um, the thing that's different in the Luke and passage is that there's, there are these eschatological, um, in both Matthew and Luke, there are these eschatological proclamations. Luke adds this ethical material, and you have the folks now saying, so are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? Maybe he is, I'm not sure. And this is a moment where John also lives into the cost of discipleship. He could be like, hey, they really liked that. They're responding well. They're full of expectation. You know, maybe I can ride this wave a little bit more. And John has to have his own moment and say, this isn't me. I'm baptizing you with water. There's someone coming after me. I'm not even fit to lace up his shoes. Um, He's going to baptize you with the Spirit and with fire. And even in his description of the Messiah, it's not necessarily one in which comfort is at the forefront, comfort as we would think of it. Um, he's going to clear his threshing floor. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. Um, and, and unquenchable fire is there for the ones that are blown the one way. And so verse 18 says, with many other exhortations, he proclaimed the good news to the people. One of the things I love so much about Asbury is that we are committed in our core to being witnesses to the good news of the present and risen Christ. Um, And sometimes I find that to be quite complicated. It's embarrassing to admit. I feel like if it were really real, it should be very simple. But passages like this remind me that um, 
they don't always come in tidy packages. These things John puts out to the, to the crowds, and they are wrapped together, these exhortations and the proclamation of the good news. I think that this is something that our world could stand to hear. Um, very often, we want to do something else. Um, we want to be defensive. We want to hide in our liturgies, our religiosities, our social status, our humble lifestyles, like it's, this is not a left-right, progressive, conservative, liberal, you know, it's, this is human nature. Fallen human nature seeks to justify itself and say, well, maybe I could be okay because I have this going for me. Um, you know, John, when he preaches to these folks and they, some folks, he said, were thinking, well, if I'm children of Abraham, I might not need this baptism of repentance. I'm pretty much all the way there. I'm pretty much, I'm grandfathered in, you know, I'm from the group. These guys over here, tax collectors, policemen, they're not, you know, they're not in the group. They're doing the bad things, but we're over here. And God calls each of us to our own life of discipleship. It's not individual, it's not isolated, but it can be very personal. You know, what is challenging for me, my discipled and sanctifying edges might be very different from where y'all are. Um, that was very much the case, you know, in this passage. Um, the idea of, like, I, it's interesting the way that, that Luke, in his books, uses the idea of identity. Um, in these days where things like identity politics can spark lots of conversations and multiple definitions, it's interesting the way that, that Luke, the author, uses identity. Um, he uses those categories quite a bit, but always in ways that tend to upend presuppositions about them. Um, he says to, he says to the, you know, the, the soldiers and the tax collectors, you're not out, you're not condemned because of your identity, um, but because you are who you are, and this is your particular role, this is the way you've got to grow. Um, children of Abraham, they weren't left on the outside of the, the call to repentance and baptism and community, but they had their own ways they had to grow. Um, I think these words, if we can... Think about what it means to exhort one another. Um, not condemn, not pacify, but this idea of exhort is really lovely. Um, it's filled with hope, it's filled with expectation, it's filled with urgency, um, and it's filled with expectation not just about what someone might do, but the sense of here is what's coming. We need to be aware, we need to respond to the moment at hand. You know, the kingdom of God is on its way. What are we going to do? How are we going to respond? The time may be now. Um, and then tomorrow, what's the time to do there? What's happening here in our moment, our growing edge of discipleship? If any of y'all read um, any of the stories about the Atlanta shootings, it's a horrible story all the way around. Um, all the things wrapped up in it. Um, you know, violence and race and faith, and people are pulling it one way and the other with the narratives. Um, but I was struck by the story I saw the other day where it said that his church had um, disavowed him or disowned him, whatever the word was they used, and they said, clearly, this person's not a regenerate believer in Christ. And it just made me sad, not because they um, spoke a word of conviction or judgment about his actions, but I thought somewhere along the way, 
folks are not hearing the proclamation of good news with exhortations to fruits of repentance. This is something that we should be praying that God will give us the words to speak well. Um, How do we call people to works of repentance and life in the good news, life in the new community that helps us to heal some of the sin, personal, societal, that's happening in our lives? I don't think that this short homily has the answers, but um, I was really taken with it. Um, I think that if we think about this idea of bearing fruits worthy of repentance, or as Paul said, um, exhibiting deeds worthy of repentance or works worthy of repentance, um, what does it mean to place our lives on the altar and say, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer did, um, when God calls us, he bids us come and die. And then we are reborn as we're reborn in baptism. But what is it we are called to, to die to today? And then when we've died, what then does that beautiful, costly grace enliven in us? What fruit will we bear? If we, if we prune off the ones that are not of God, what fruit will we bear then? Um, maybe we can, as a community, think about ways in the next months to, um, to explore this in our groups, in our classes, um, and in our times with God. I am deeply grateful for the opportunity to get to share the Word of God with you, and let us go forth um, exhorting and proclaiming the fantastic good news of the kingdom of God. Amen.